Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a conversation between Pastor Douglas Wilson and Jake McAtee, host of Canon Calls. This conversation is about Pastor Wilson's new documentary, How to Save the World in 11 Simple Steps, available now on Canon Plus. All right. Now welcoming on special guest, Pastor Wilson, thanks so much for coming back. Yeah, glad to be back. I wanted to, to uh, talk to you today, uh, number one, about your new documentary, and then number two, if we can, we'll talk about your new book, The Covenant Household, uh, that you released this November. Why don't we start with uh, giving you the opportunity to sort of undo maybe what the marketing team has done by putting you on a poster that says, How to Save the World. <laughs> what is this documentary about? So. Um- I have to give a little backstory on it first. Okay. The documentary accompanies a book that I, I wrote called Gashmu Saith It. Okay. And the subtitle of um, that book is How to Build Communities That Save the World. Okay. So it's it's about basically parish life, Christian life, covenant life together in the church and in the community. That's, that's what the book's about. Okay. Um, now, the problem uh, with... Um, the, uh, that cute title, Gash Musa, yeah. is that nobody understands. <laughs> nobody understands. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm a misunderstood person. Sure. Um, it comes from Nehemiah 6, where Sanballat and those guys are trying to talk Nehemiah into coming down off the wall. And he refuses to do it. He refuses to come down like four times. And they finally get indignant and send a letter saying, everybody knows that you're a rebel and da 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 and Gashmu saith it. You know, even, you know, Gashmu is, is against you. And, um, and the, so my using that as a title is sort of a hat tip to this unknown character from yeah. <laughs> who was apparently very important back in the day. Right. And, uh, and Sanballat and those guys were trying to scare Nehemiah with Gashmu's opinion. So this, is, this is Nehemiah's Fauci. Right. Of sorts. But only, let's say, 500 years from now, nobody knows who Fauci is. Right. right, right. <laughs> because things have improved. Right. <laughs> they would be so, so lucky. Yeah. So, but how many, uh, so how many modern Christians abandon the work of building community in, cult, in uh, Christian community uh, with the church and worship of God at the center? How many of us abandon our task because of the opinion of our modern Gashmus? Okay, that so that, but all of that was kind of inside baseball. You know, it's like <laughs> I saw in your post a family member told you that. <laughs> yes, a family member <laughs> whose yeah. last name is the name is the same as mine. <laughs> yeah. uh, so said um, you. You need a title that makes people say "huh" um, and pick it up. So, how to save the world basically is a title that. Uh, tweaks your interest, and it's about the same thing that Gashmus saith it, and it's um, uh, it's it's this is complicated because how to save the world is misleading, but it, the the false impression you get is fixed as soon as you pick it up, as soon as you start, right? Right, but it's intriguing. It's misleading but intriguing. Yeah, um, Gashmus saith it is just baffling and, <laughs> and and the person doesn't have enough to say oh i need to find out 
I need to find out why I should care about Gashmu. Right. There's not enough of a not enough <laughs> of a tease, not sure. enough of a tease there. Now, a documentary that just said how to save the world, I think, really would have been conceded. But the subtitle, I think, addresses that: how to save the world uh, in uh, is in what is obviously eleven simple steps. Yeah. And then asterisk, not easy. Um, that eleven simple steps is sort of making fun of the. Sure. Of the title. Yeah. Right. And um, at least it's making fun of it if you have a sense of humor, which some of the people who follow me do not. Do not have a sense <laughs> of humor. Yeah. So you mentioned that it, the minute you pick it up, it's sort of dispelled. And you start step number one with be a good egg. Mm-hmm. If, if you're someone out there, make sure your bills are being paid. Right. That's your first step to saving the world. Correct. That is your doing the dishes. Yeah. You can't make a good omelet with rotten eggs. And it doesn't matter. if There are many ideologues, schemers, theologians, who have the perfect plan for how the world should go. Yeah. And, but that's like uh, trying to eat the recipes out of your cookbook. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you tear them out one at a page at yeah. a time and you might be able to get them down. But we're not supposed to eat rep- recipes, right? Uh, and uh, but in order to have actual omelets, you have to have actual eggs. And and too many Christians, conservative evangelical reform Christians, concentrate on getting the right recipe, equipping the the kitchen with all the right, you know, great the best top of the line stove, all the best cookware, uh, trained chef, everything is there except for the omelet, right? Right. And the omelet is actually living in a Christian community and loving one another and working with one another and dealing with all one another's sins. And that's the, that's the actual experience. And when you have when you have an omelet and it's good and it's piping hot, it got there because of the recipe. It got there because of the cook. You had to have a kitchen. Yeah. All of those things make perfect sense, provided the Provided that they're teleological, right? right? And then the the essential ingredient that the pastors, who are the cooks, and the recipes, which are the the books that have been written down through Christian history on living together in Christian community with the foundation of Scripture, all of those things are uh, very important. But they, the, the cooks, the the people behind all of it, have to have the ingredients. And the ingredients are Christians who are good eggs. Yes. So I imagine there's, there is a turn of mind that would be totally with you, have the same sense of humor, hopefully, of save the world, you know, go to the ends of the world, Matthew 24, as soon as we get a missionary to the, that last tribe, the Lord comes. Okay. I, I imagine they would think, what's with the other 10 steps? <laughs> you know? Right. It's this, the 11th step is the game. That's what we're up to. Right. Yeah. So- the uh, what what you're describing there is what I call man the lifeboats evangelism, okay. <laughs> okay. right? And or evangelism is thought of as helicoptering sinners out of Saigon before the commies take it over, sure. right? Um, as though the world were God's Vietnam and he he has to get his elect out, yeah. Um, or Afghanistan, the messy withdrawal from Af- Afghanistan. Uh, but if you think, as I do as a post-millennialist, 
that God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That means the world and what the world contains. And that's not just a narrow, truncated, saved soul. Uh, the salvation of a person's soul is important, crucial, uh, it's foundational, but it's everything is saved. My life, my family, my, my calling. Um, so Christ is Lord of everything, not just Lord of my personal ego. Yeah. So this is the good life. You, you are hoping to set forth. These are all the ingredients. These are all the ingredients. Um, where I don't want to give an inch to the Manichaeism or the, the Gnostic assumption that the spiritual realm upstairs is good and holy and right, and downstairs is either neutral or worthless or yeah. wicked. I think it. I think when I watch it, it suddenly, all of a sudden, I feel like I have so much work to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> In yes. Forty-eight minutes. I've learned like you know, the conviction of man. Everything I do daily matters. Right, and B Paul says. Um, Whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. And that means Paul wants to glorify God down to the last French fry. Right. <laughs> right. And we, we want to say, well, French fries aren't important. Well, but they are. Maybe to the last pizza even, you know? Yeah. <laughs> the last piece of Wooster's pizza. Yeah. yeah. Now, I, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You probably weren't privy to every post decision we made in terms of uh, which steps we're in or out. Like, I don't remember where man, where men as gates always. Um, well, in. actually the, um, I wasn't privy to any of the arrangement of the, you know, those things. Although I basically, I was interviewed on a bunch of right. things across the spectrum that was in line with the book. And then the arrangement was done uh, after I was out of the picture. Yeah, the, that edit wasn't uh, done by me, but okay. when I watched it, it was um, well well done. It, basically, I had no problem with how it was laid out. I was curious if there was anything you thought I would add this, or if there was anything. No, I, I was really pleased with awesome. the. I was really pleased with the way it all came together. Awesome, awesome. Uh, that means the guys doing the edits <laughs> were paying attention, <laughs> right? Uh, so I want to bring up Covenant. You have a book coming out on Covenant. You have a Covenant piece in there, and I should let you know there's a in in the production suite. Um, it's not a drinking game because we're Christians, but we do always love to hear the beanbag and the isolated BBs. <laughs> and uh, that if if yeah if someone wants to know Doug Wilson what he cares about, yeah, I care about BBs. It's 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 yeah. it's like what you're trying to get at with the covenant piece. Right. Um, do you mind talking a little bit about that? I don't know that a lot of people appreciate how weird it is in a good way. Right. Like there's something going on with covenant. That's not a contract as we understand. Correct. It. This is good. Weird. This is good. Weird. Right. Do you mind talking a little bit? No, about it? I love talking about good. Weird. <laughs> good. Weird is, is my, is my, uh, what do you call it? Specialty. Sweet specialty. Is, yeah. It's my uh, sweet spot. So um, he, this is the, um, I'll, I'll reuse a phrase that I first heard uh, in a book about or from Gerard, Rene Gerard, okay. uh, where he said um, that we're not individuals. 
we're interdividuals. Okay. Okay. Um, and inter, inter, interdividuals are connected to one another. And, uh, and what that means is in, in the modern secular age, we have atomized each person. So when you walk through a crowd, uh, physically, each person is discrete from the other person. Yep. And you can say, well, see, there's so many BBs. There's a, there's a crowded room. That's a box full of BBs. Yeah. Each right. expressing their e own. Each expressing their own discrete. And there's a border around each yeah. BB. And we can tell where each BB leaves off and e the next one begins. Right. Um, and they, they all happen to be in the same box. But that box is a social construct. And we can redo the box. We can reconfigure the box. Yep. We can repackage the box. But what, ha what matters for the modern secularist is that, that hard center of the BB. Yeah. Um, the, I would prefer to change it uh, I would, to a more scriptural um, illustration. It's not a box full of BBs. It's more like leaves on a tree. Okay. Okay. Now, I can tell one leaf from another just as easily as I can tell one BB from another. Right. There is such a thing as distinct individuality. So I'm not trying to take anything away from the biblical doctrine of individuality because we go to heaven or hell by ones, right? right. Uh, so that, that's the hard center of individuality that's a biblical concept. But we're also all connected. We're leaves on a tree. We're all cousins, right? And everybody on earth today is descended from Noah, and Noah was descended from Adam. There's a sort of organic There's an organic, connectedness. There's a, you go upstream. You, if you get in deep into uh, family tree stuff, ancestry stuff, you go back far enough, you're, you're related to William the Conqueror. <laughs> you know. yeah. And everybody you, know is, yeah. everybody you know is also related to the same. We're, we're connected, in other words. Now... Uh, the Bible is full of teaching on the covenant. And the covenant is a doctrine that enables us to make sense of that interconnectedness. And it enables us to, to bond to one another, to take advantage of that interconnectedness in ways that fit with God's design. Yep. Right. Uh, so one example of a covenant would be, um, Covenant marriage. So uh, in Malachi, the, the men are lamenting why God's not answering their prayers. And the answer is that you are faithless to your wife by covenant. Um, and the, in Proverbs, the faithless woman is violating the covenant or okay. her husband, but she's cheating on her husband by covenant. So uh, it's not outlandish to say that marriages are a covenantal reality. Now, I would italicize that last word, reality. So when, when a man leaves his father and mother, cleaves to his wife, the two become one flesh. There's a new unity in the world that's a thing, right? It's, it, it, it takes shape in the, in the world in accordance with God's design, and it is a discrete thing. You've got the man as an individual, you've got the woman as the individual, but you also has, have the couple as a reality in the world, okay? okay. It's, it's more than just roommates, right? right? So, um, and, and I, one of the things they talk about is um, 
the difference between a covenant, which creates this reality, and a contract. So if you had two businessmen who, you know, one promised to deliver the widgets and another promised to pay him so much money for the widgets, and they shake hands on it, they make a contract, uh, and then they're visiting at a party or something a couple months later, and they both discover that this guy's widget factory burned down and the other guy had a canceled order where he doesn't need the widgets anymore. Because the contract is theirs, they're in authority over it. They can shake hands and tear up the contract. It's over. No blood, no foul. Um, They have authority to dispense with that. But if you had a man marry a woman and two years into it, no kids, they've kept their property distinct. You know, accounts are distinct. Everything's everything's. And they are talking one day and, you know, we don't really love each other. Do you know? And me neither. That that kind of thing. Um, Can they just shake hands and part company? No. (laughs) They can't. They don't have grounds. Because God has created, God has joined together, let no man separate. All right. So right. the only way you can separate the covenant is when it's already shattered by the guilty party on the other side, but right. via infidelity or something like that. Uh, but when God joins something together, we, we have no authority to redefine or change or alter it, which is why the Supreme Court of Burgerfeld definition is so impudent. They are claiming to have jurisdiction over something that right. they have absolutely no jurisdiction over. They don't get to define what a covenant is. And I imagine a lot of work is happening in the inter part of the individual. We are yeah. the connectedness. There's this is not something maybe a materialist could see. I assume the Burgerfell thing, as far as they're concerned, why isn't why are these people not allowed to make a contract? Right. You guys have contracts and you're really bad at keeping them. Why can't they also be bad at keeping them? What is what is in the documentary? You use the word potent several times. When a man loves a woman, he takes a wife, and he he's faithful to her, and he loves her as Christ loves the church. You say that's very potent. It's very potent. What is the word potent doing? Can you tell the materialist? It's being it's being potent. Yeah, the tell word the-, <laughs> the word potent is potent. Um, so what what's happening is. Uh, this, the secularists and the atheists and the non-believers are, think that they're living in the world as they've defined it, but they're actually living in the world that God made. Okay. Bad news. So, that, that, so basically, there's a, cogn- there's a disconnect between what they're saying the world is like and what the world that they're living in, the day-to-day world they're actually living in, is actually like. Right. Okay. So when I speak this way, when a man, uh, let's say you've got a secular humanist on one side and good old boy American redneck on the other side, and they've got different kinds of troubled marriages, egalitarian on the one side and sort of machismo um, mess on the other side. And then in between, you have a Christian man loving a Christian wife who's respecting her husband as the church does Christ. And everything is going the way it ought to in the middle. Um, the couples on both sides from different, from different um, areas of disobedience are going to be looking at the way it ought to be. And there is something in their nature that tells them that's the way it ought to be. Right. Right. And that means that they're going to be envious or, oh, uh, why aren't they unhappy? Why? They're the ones, they're the crazy fundamentalists. 
Why are they happy and we're unhappy? We know the truth and yeah. we're miserable. They, uh, they're living this way in, in line with outmoded bigotries, and yet they're, <laughs> they're happy. Uh, years ago, I had, uh, I had a very surreal experience. Um, I, was, I debated a, an atheist uh, here in Moscow, okay. and, and it was a two-stage debate. Uh, it was like a Friday night and Saturday morning debate. Okay. And, uh, and because this atheist was in town over the weekend, we invited him to our Sabbath dinner. Okay. And, which, and he came to it. And uh, in the debate, at some point in the debate, one of his debating points was Christianity mistreats women. Christianity abuses women. Okay. And, and he quoted some verse out of Deuteronomy. I forget what the, forget what the verse was, but see, see uh, Christianity abuses women. And then uh, Saturday evening, he came to our Sabbath dinner. And we had a bunch of guests, and he was down at the other end. He was talking to a friend of mine uh, down there, and he said, I have never seen so many beautiful women in my life. It's here in Moscow. And he was from Beverly Hills. He lived in Beverly Hills, right? So he comments, uh, I've never seen so many beautiful women in my life. And my friend said, so does that tell you anything? And he said, well, it tells me they don't live in Beverly Hills. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I want you to see that that illustrates the disconnect I'm talking about. He had a doctrine that... um, Christian wives whose husbands love them as Christ loved the church and who respect their husbands, women in that position are miserable and downtrodden. Right. And then he looks at all these women who are beautiful and flourishing and happy, and he couldn't deny that that was what he was seeing. Right. Right. I, and I would think if I were an atheist and I saw that reality, I'd keep my mouth shut. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Yeah, you wouldn't go tell him I wouldn't go. about it. <laughs> yeah. Because that was kind of a self-own. Right. Right. I, I imagine another way to get at this weird is um, I've heard you talk about um, you've taken a note from Job's parenting book. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw there and what sort of the covenantal cause and effect? I think you've I've heard you say. Yeah. So the uh, I would contrast the first in the first chapter of Job um, the parents of the man born blind, that Jesus heals in the Gospel of John. Yeah. And the, when, the, when the Jews call in the, the parents and say, is this your son? You know, uh, how is he made whole? And they say, he's of age, ask him. You know, they, they're wanting to say. <laughs> <laughs> they're like pushing him <laughs> right. out. Yeah. Um, they're, they're putting distance because, and Job, on the other hand, closes the distance. Okay. So when his, when his kids had a big festival or a party, Job, it says that Job offered sacrifice, good next day would offer a sacrifice. And he said, because it may be that one of my kids has cursed God in their hearts. In their hearts. So Job is sacrificing. Job is taking ownership. Okay. And, and I would describe that as a covenantal ownership. Okay. He is, he's not saying, well, they're over 18, so whatever they do is on them. Right. Or... Um, he, he's not trying to distance himself. And one of the things I've, I've been fond of saying for years, and it's in line with this, and that is authority flows to those who take responsibility. And, and I would amplify that by saying taking responsibility means taking covenantal responsibility. And I define a covenant 
in the documentary as a solemn bond, sovereignly administered, with attendant blessings and curses. So it's a solemn bond. If I own the bond between me and my wife, if I own the bond between me and my children, so I own the bond, which is a covenantal bond, which is solemnly administered in a church between me and my wife in the, in a, or in a Christian religious service. That bond was formalized. And then my children grew up in the covenant, and I acknowledge that bond sovereignly administered with attendant blessings and curses, right. or, uh, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. If I do that and I accept that responsibility, God looks at Job in chapter 1 and says, he brags on him to the devil. Right. He says, have you seen my servant Job? Look at him go. So Job was right to take responsibility for things his older children might have done in their hearts. Which is not the same as guilt. No, responsibility, that's a good, thank you. Um, this is one of the more difficult things that, that I... Uh, uh, more uh, more difficult things I have in getting across uh, in marriage counseling and that sort of thing. Taking responsibility is not the same thing as accepting guilt, right? Um, let's say, just take a trivial example. Uh, let's say you've got a married couple whose the husband was tr being financial res financially responsible, and he sat down with his wife and they made a budget, and he said, okay, we're this is how we're going to use our credit cards. Let's say she goes off and charges something extravagant that um, that she shouldn't have, that was out of line with that. And just so you know, I'm aware of the kind of times we live in. There's going to be a question that comes in for this and say, well, husbands run up credit cards too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, they do. <laughs> cool off. <laughs> yes, they do, yeah. of course. Um, but the point is, that's an example of individualism and egalitarianism. You can't say anything about a wife sinning sure. unless you give equal time to husband's sins. Right. But, but that's not the world we live in. Right. So in this illustration, the husband, um, it, and he finds out, let's say his wife bought this extravagant item that was way out of line with what they both agreed to do. And that he said was, he had made the decision as the head of the household, this yeah. is what we're going to do. And she disobeyed. Okay. Say, all right, she disobeyed. Now, when he discovers that, is he guilty of that overcharge or that? No, he's not guilty of it at all. At all, is he responsible for it? Yes, he's responsible for it. It's his bank account. All right, he's re he, now he's got a situation between him and his wife, and he has to take responsibility for that situation. Right. He, um, he didn't create the situation by charging something he shouldn't have. Right. But he is now that now that he knows he can't say, well, that's on you. Right. He, he's not he's not allowed to do that. The other other illustration I use is um, let's say a man buys a business. And let's say the business, the, the seller of the business cleverly arranged his affairs so that there was a budgetary surprise for, for the okay. new for the yeah. new owner. Yeah. And the, the new owner discovers six months into it that there are $50,000 due back taxes or something, you know, $50,000. Now, did, did the new owner uh, run up those charges? No. Is he guilty for having incurred those charges? No, no guilt at all. Right. But who's responsible? Well, he's responsible because he owns the business now. And so the husband and father is always responsible 
in that way. Yeah. All right. I think, why would you say, so that when I heard you teach on that, it's not something I grew up hearing. You've talked about, um, let's say a father is sinning. Um, let's say he has a porn addiction and he finds out suddenly my son has one. It's not as though the son saw the addiction, learned the addiction by seeing it. But the weird of covenant is that there was a covenant permissiveness there. The covenant permission was granted. And it was covenant permission that was should not have been granted. So sometimes kids learn bad habits by a bad example. You know, sure. the kid takes up smoking because he sees his dad smoking. All right. That that's copy. You know, monkey see, monkey do. Right. That's it doesn't take a great um, pastoral wisdom to see where that came from. Right. The kids kids copy their parents, and they copy them in areas that you can see. But there are other areas where let's say the sin of the father is carefully hidden and nobody knows about it, okay? What, he's, what he has done is he's left that door unlocked in his house, and he leaves it unlocked so that he can go in and out. Right. But other people can go in and out also. It's a spiritual reality that matters a lot. Correct. Yeah. I didn't grow up hearing that very often. And, it, and I think even with men who have their homes in order and everything else, just like Job, it doesn't seem to allow for the fact they can slack off or sacrifices are still to be made. Responsibility is still to be taken. And there's a lot to do. There's always something. There's, yeah, there's a lot to do. There's always one day full of things to do just ahead of you. I think I've heard you call yourself, is it a cheerful cynic? Yes, uh, sunny, sunny, a sunny, sunny cynicism. A sunny cynicism. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious what you would say to, to maybe someone of a similar disposition who sees the documentary and thinks it's really great for Moscow. Right. I wish it were true. Right. But I don't see that happening here. Yeah. Uh, the problem. Well, I, I would just say, 40 years ago, it wasn't happening here either. Yeah. Right. Right. The, the, um. God calls into existence things that are not. That's what we're, um, what is it that John says at the end of 1 John? What is it that overcomes the world? Is it not our faith? So what a visionary does is he sees things that could be as though they are. Right? And then he takes steps with that in mind, and um, big things grow from small seeds. And you, you can look around your community and say, I don't, see, um, I don't see that happening here, because all the churches are dead, okay? And I would, I would go say, all right, let's get, take a tour of all the dead mainline churches. When they built that building, was it dead then? No. Right. And then you go down the street, when they built that church, was it dead at the, when they, no, it's conservatives and evangelicals that do the building. And and then the liberals and the parasites take over, yeah. hollow it, and hollow it out, yeah. and gut it, right? right. But you, you can just look around, glance around the world, and you can see enormous accomplishments by previous generations who had much more faith than the current caretakers 
of the, of that entity. So let's say you go to a cathedral in Europe and you listen to some wretched sermon, some, some sad excuse, <laughs> some yeah. sad excuse for a sermon. Sure. A couple, a few years ago, Nancy and I uh, were with a group that went to Geneva and we worshiped, uh, we worshiped in Calvin's uh, church where Calvin preached. And uh, the sermon was in French, um, but our friends who spoke French told us it was all about climate change. Yeah. <laughs> so in in Calvin's pulpit, yeah. they're going on about. I don't this, remember that uh, in the institutes. Uh, yeah. Oh golly. Yeah. But the point is that the people who are frittering away wealth, yeah. like the prodigal son buying another round on the house, they're not the ones who generated the wealth. Okay. And so I would say where I would look to Christians today and say, why aren't you building now? Yeah. R right. Um, you And don't tell me that it can't be done because it's been done generation after generation after generation. Now, it would make more sense for you to say, what's the use of building? Because the liberals are just going to come in and take it over, you know, after, after 150 years. Uh, it's, um, my mom was a graduate of uh, Prairie Bible Institute up in Alberta, northern Alberta. And the president of that school back in the days refused to build nice brick buildings because he said he didn't want to build nice things for the liberals. <laughs> <laughs> That's a matter of principle, at least. <laughs> at the very yeah. least. Yeah. Now, you look around at the North yeah. America last 150 years, a man kind of had a point, yeah. But that it shouldn't let us off the hook. We, I mean, we're called if, we, if we're called to believe in Christ and to build His kingdom, then we, then we should build His kingdom and put in as many firewalls as we can think of to put in to either slow the liberals down or stop them entirely. <laughs> to the to the faith and imagination point, and telling on myself, I think I do this. This is a sin of mine of just not really believing that it could be bigger than I thought or more than I thought or more potent than I thought. So to that cynic, I I, I have sympathy there. I, uh, I'll try this and see if maybe it comes around or maybe it doesn't. But the McAtees are very slowly working their way through 2 Samuel. And one thing that um, in the David and Bathsheba case, and then I think also in the comes up again in the rape of uh, Tamar. Um, there's something that Nathan says to David, or God says to David, uh, that struck me this time through, where he said, "And if you had just asked, I would have given you much more." Mm -hmm. So he's sort of reaming him, yeah, for grabbing at what he could have been given. And that was like that, that, yeah, that was really convicting. That was like, and it's, I don't, is it similarly? And then I, I don't know if the next, next chapter, next two chapters, I believe Tamar says, if you would just ask David. He would, yeah, she, she says, ask and, and he'll give, give me to you. Uh, how much of this sort of, of, of like what is going on behind that? I know that those are two distinctly sexual instances but is there something else is it like is there something for the modern church yeah we want here? to be autonomous we don't want to be beholden yeah. so one of the one of the 
uh, central sins uh, in Romans 1 is they refuse to honor God as God and refuse to give him thanks. Um, yeah. Okay, so yeah. when God gives us things, the duty that we have immediately is to be grateful. Right. But gratitude is a submissive demeanor that we don't like. Right. So we, we want to have the thing and not have to say thank you. We want to be like Nebuchadnezzar standing on the walls of Babylon saying, is this not great Babylon that I've built? Yeah. Right. That, that's what we want. And we don't want the seven years as a cow <laughs> or, <laughs> or acting like a cow. But yeah. that's, that's where we're headed. And that's why, that's why this once proud secular c- civilization yeah. is at the level now where people are identifying as uh, furries. Yeah. <laughs> right. And all the normal people can't tell them no. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, I, I, I just read, heard about a situation where there was a, a public school somewhere where a kid was identifying as a dog, as a, a dog or a cat. Okay. And okay, that's we've always had mental illness. Right? Sure. Okay, that, there's that. But then it was the responsible people. The school required a litter box to be um, placed for this kid. Okay. Well, that that is a society that's lost its mind. Yeah. Okay. And we're Nebuchadnezzar eating the grass. That that's what we're doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. I. Uh... Because we won't thank God. And, and primarily, we are sinning against the God who would have given it to us had we asked. Correct. And, that's, that's, and, and who did, in fact, who did give it to us, did, did right. give us all this. There's never been a nation in the history of the world that's had it as good as we've got. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it'd be hard to, uh, from the, there have been nations where the pharaohs and the czars and whatnot have had, had it pretty good. Yeah. But this is the first nation where staggering wealth yep. is pervasive throughout the whole society. Yep. And rather than give thanks, we took the route of impudence. Well, on that happy note, Pastor Wilson, thanks for coming on. Thank and you. everybody, you can go see uh, How to Save the World in 11 Simple Steps, Pastor Wilson. And it's on Canon Plus. I believe you can still use the code NQNQ. Get a month free and uh, tell all your friends. Yeah. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full documentary, How to Save the World in 11 Simple Steps, now available on Canon+.